0: Quick content warning for this episode we do dive into some deep topics surrounding substance use substance abuse and eating disorders so if this is something that you find would be potentially triggering to your recovery journey go ahead and skip this episode and we'll see you in the next one hi everyone welcome back to the podcast i am so excited that you're listening in today because we just had a really great conversation with Amanda from Therapy for Women. Amanda is a licensed therapist and the creator of the popular Instagram account and TikTok at Therapy for Women. She is in recovery from an addiction and eating disorder. And in her clinical work, Amanda specializes in supporting clients in the overlap and intersection of both. She's the founder of Therapy for Women Center in Philadelphia and is serving clients across the country. So it was really awesome to to talk to somebody who is so specialized in the area of substance use and eating disorders, because really this conversation comes up a lot in my own clients with, with my own coaching about how sometimes even just social drinking or smoking marijuana may, Relate to binge eating or a form of control when it comes to food or substances. So, there's so many nuances to it, which we dive into with Amanda. So, I'm really excited for you to listen into this conversation and I hope that you gain some insight from it. And of course, make sure you check out Amanda at Therapy for Women on Instagram and, of course, TikTok. TikTok's how I found her and I, I love her TikToks. They're just so funny and relatable, but shed light on some really important topics. So let's dive into this conversation and let me know your thoughts at the end. Welcome to Behind the Binge, the podcast where we bring forth much-needed conversations about binge eating recovery and ditching diet culture. I'm your host, Marissa Kaimilic, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and binge eating coach. This is our space to dive into practical tips to heal from binge eating, challenge your diet culture beliefs, discuss the nuances of intuitive eating, and empower you to recover. Let's start exploring what's behind the binge. thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today yeah thank you so much for having me Marissa of course well it's been really great chatting with you so far I actually found you through your TikToks which was just mm. so relatable and great so I really love it um, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do
1: yeah, so I'm Amanda White. Um, I'm a licensed therapist. You might know me on Instagram or TikTok as Therapy for Women. Um, and I have um, a uh, practice, uh, a therapy practice in Philadelphia. Um, and yeah, I'm also, I talk a lot on my page about substance use and eating disorders, and that is my specialty in my clinical work. Um, and I really got into that specialty cause I'm in recovery from a substance use disorder and an eating disorder. And, um, when I was trying to get into recovery and navigating all of that, like 10 years ago, I found that there wasn't a lot of people who specialized in the overlap. And I felt frustrated because I had to go to one therapist for this and one therapist for that. And, um, you know, different recovery programs. And no one was, there were a lot of people that struggled with both, but it seemed like not many people were talking about both in the same place. So that's really kind of what piqued my interest in
0: it. Yeah. I love that. So were you becoming a therapist already when you were going through your own recovery or did that was. spark? Okay, very cool. And so then you just kind of found that need and decided to kind of specialize a little bit more specific.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I struggled with an eating disorder and a substance use disorder um, throughout high school, throughout college. And I felt very lost after I graduated college and I started seeing a therapist who was awesome. And she like disclosed that she was in recovery from a substance use disorder. And that really like gave me a lot of hope because I was like, oh, if you're doing this, maybe I could do this. And I kind of promised myself that if I got into recovery and I made it to the other side that I would do the same for other people.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think it's so interesting how she disclosed with you, you know, her own recovery journey, because I found even becoming a dietitian, we're constantly told and in, in our studies, you know, don't self-disclose, like make it about the client. But I, I often find that there is a time and a place to self-disclose and that can honestly bring that connection between you and your your client or your patient to where they're like, wow, okay, you not only are doing it or have done it yourself, but you get me, and yeah. that's what I found as well when when working with people through my own eating disorder recovery as well mm-hmm. is just when I knew that they came from that place that I was in, it, it, there was just that relatability and just yeah. more of a deeper understanding. So I think that's really really great that that kind of sparked something in you and your own journey, but also now with where you are helping other people with the same thing, I'm sure that impacts the other way around now with your your current clients.
1: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I literally wrote a paper in grad school in favor of self-disclosure and I got like a terrible grade on it because oh, wow. didn't agree with it and didn't like it. Um, but I think there's a time and a place and I think especially when it's put into... Your marketing or on your website or something like that then people can kind of you know it isn't for everyone not everyone wants to see a therapist or a dietitian who um you know has the same experience as them or has that experience but then at least they kind of like know so to me I really like being able to put it on my Instagram or my website because then people um it's not like we have to I don't have to like tell them necessarily in session. We don't spend time talking about my recovery, but if they are interested or they want to know, they can, you know, they can know that in the background before they go in.
0: Right, exactly. And I I think that's important to note that there's a person for everybody, right? Like, and some people want someone who has been there and some people don't. But I think it's really great to be open about that so that way someone can make that decision. So you mentioned, you know, in eating disorder recovery and your um, substance abuse disorder, you were kind of trying to find... Uh, recovery for both of those at the same time. So how do you find that substance abuse disorders and eating disorders go hand in hand? Like, do you find that they often have blurred lines there about maybe why they're happening together?
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of research and statistics, actually, just about how overlapped they are. Um, Obviously, studies range because it depends on what you quantify as a substance use disorder, what you quantify as an eating disorder, but statistics range from like, uh, 15 to 45%. So there's a pretty big range, but I mean, 45% is a huge number. And personally, I, before I started my private practice, I, um, ran a women's unit, a long-term women's unit in a substance use disorder rehab. And, um, I was shocked at how many women, I mean, I would say 99% of them all had some type of thing going on with their food. Whether they actually met criteria as having an eating disorder, no, but it's such a common whether whether people realize once they stop using that actually part of how they started using drugs especially was potentially to reduce their appetite. I mean, that was a big thing that people discovered or um, people realize once they stop using that um, they have some issues with food and then they end up either binging or they gain weight and then they don't want to gain weight. So then they end up restricting in some capacity. Um, There's so, so much overlap. And one thing that's really, really difficult, I think, and sad that I see in substance use, uh, like addiction rehabs is, they often talk about sugar as being addictive and food as being addictive. And they do a lot of things like, I mean, when I worked there, like sugar was limited from patients. Um, They wouldn't let them like eat dessert. You know, they would, um, if someone was caught quote unquote, like with a bag of chips in their room or something like that, it was like, this is addict behavior. Like you're an addict, this is you being an addict. And it, I mean, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because if you try to take food away from someone, you make them in food scarcity. And a lot of these people, I mean, if you think about someone who's coming off the streets who hasn't been getting adequate nourishment for years, I mean, most people aren't if they are using substances in a big way, whether they were like, actually homeless and experiencing real food scarcity, or they just were so addicted that they weren't hungry and weren't nourishing themselves. It's a very common thing to, once you start, you know, um, getting into recovery that, you know, your hunger cues come back, your body wants to nourish itself. Your body is looking for nutrients. So it was really sad to see them like pathologize that and cause shame for people. And I always think about how you first have to give people enough food before you can ever start to worry about, you know, if they're eating enough nutrients or things like that. Like the enoughness needs to come first.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Because our bodies aren't going to crave Carrots and broccoli and celery when you haven't had enough energy to begin with it's gonna crave those energy dense foods like the chips and so to hear you know that those were maybe shamed when that's probably literally what the body was needing in that moment is so confusing, I'm sure for, for the client in that situation. Cause they're like, well, I'm trying to maybe listen to what my body is trying yeah. to tell me, but I'm also having this inner battle of, Oh, is this, you know, ad- addictive behavior? Am I addicted now to just sugar instead of now the substance? Oh, that's, that's so confusing. And, and it is such a hot topic in diet culture that, Oh, yeah. food is addicting. And so you should treat it the way you would treat drugs and alcohol, but what I find is that, well, you can't because food is a necessity. You can't be abstinent from, from food. And so kind of going off of that, it sounds like you've kind of dealt with probably talking to both of those things of dealing with, with the eating disorder or dealing with, you know, the binging that a lot of people think is coming from food addiction and also dealing with drug addiction. So how does that, what, what do you take of that?
1: Yeah, I mean I think exactly like you said Marissa it's really important to distinguish that food and sugar are necessities we like we need them to survive and I think it's important I mean how I understand and classify eating disorders at is that it isn't even really about the food it's about the th- feeling of being in control of your food and body weight Mm -hmm. and shape what we get addicted to is the idea that we can change our body we get addicted to the idea that if we lose this amount of weight our life will change people will see us differently we will you know be happy whatever all the things that diet culture and be you know thinness promise um, and they, they do overlap in that sense of even for some people, right, like drinking can be in the same space of it can promise, right, like that you'll be popular, it can promise that you'll be liked, it can promise that you'll be funny, that you'll have friends. So I do often talk about like the root of alcohol culture and diet culture is very similar. And I do this talk where I compare there's like a Kim Kardashian, right, like Kim Kardashian, um, ad where you can compare she looks almost the same and the messaging is the same of like Nutrisystem versus like Bacardi or some other like alcohol I forget that she's like advertising and the message is the same you'll be popular you'll be like me you'll be happy you'll be rich you'll have friends whatever um so so yeah to me it's like even with substances obviously substances are different because they're actually addictive they create a thirst and a want for themselves. And it's really hard I think because people can feel addicted to sugar or food and that scares them because it feels the same sometimes initially as drugs or alcohol. But the difference is if I or you or anyone was given all of like the alcohol and drugs potentially they wanted, your tolerance would keep going up and you would keep wanting more. Where if you were given access to enough food it's, it starts, if you let yourself eat as much food of different types of food and things like that as you want, it starts to become a lot less interesting and you don't want it anymore where that's not true for substances because they're actually addictive. Um, and I talk about that a lot with like, even if you think about alcohol specifically, people sometimes push back on me well being like, well, we've been drinking alcohol for, you know, like, Hundreds of years, it's normal. If I try to cut back, I want it more. Or I get frustrated when sometimes intuitive eating dietitians talk about like intuitive drinking Mm -hmm. and like we're not meant to consume alcohol. Yes, we can, but it's actually, I've done research on this because I'm writing a book about this. And the real reason that we're able to consume alcohol is because there was a genetic mutation that happened, like. Thousands of years ago, where or millions of years ago, I guess, where um, we were able to eat rotten fruit. And that's how we were able to metabolize alcohol. I mean, that's how the first alcohol existed wow. was from rotting fruit. Um, and it wasn't as nutritious as regular fruits, but we were able to eat it. And then eventually people used beer a lot of times because it was a way to drink water that was contaminated and you wouldn't die from it because it was fermented. So that whole tangent is just to say that alcohol and food or drugs and food aren't the same and they need to be, while their underpinnings can be very similar and they can overlap, the recovery needs to look different.
0: Totally. And I definitely want to go into that, how it looks different, but what you were saying about um, just kind of how you could eat and eat and eat all the food that you want. And eventually you're not going to want more, but with alcohol, it's totally different. I get that question a lot, especially through social media who don't, from people who don't totally understand my message being like, no, you just have to restrict further. And I'm like the restricting further of food causes us to want it more. Whereas actually giving ourselves that unconditional permission causes us to want it less. And so you really can't treat Food, food disorders, binge yeah. eating, anything like that, the same way you would treat an addiction to drugs because and I've I've seen some of the research that people throw at me, and it's like, oh, well, you get that dopamine from food. I'm like, yes, you're supposed to. <laughs> like we also get dopamine from hugging someone. Exactly, <laughs> right? right? That doesn't mean it's addictive. <laughs> right, right. Right. It's like we're we're supposed to get these feel-good, you know, hormones and neurotransmitters, everything from food because it is something that not only gives our body what it needs, but does bring joy in certain ways, but that it doesn't automatically create an addictive pathway. Um, and often, you know, because I specifically work with people with binge eating, they feel it's addictive. But when, like you said, you get down to where it came from, it's coming from the fact that it's so off limits that when you allow yourself to have it, it's like, you can't stop. But I give kind of the same analogy where it's like, let's pretend you ate pizza for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day this week. How many days before you're over it? Whereas like you said, the same sentiment could not be applied to yeah. to drugs. You just keep wanting it more. So let's kind of dive into yeah. that. What, do you, what are kind of the biggest differences between treating an eating disorder? And if you don't mind like kind of specifically yeah. talking to binge eating, that and the difference between the way you would treat um, an addiction or just kind of the use of alcohol or or drugs? Yeah. So I
1: think like remembering specifically with binge eating disorder, right? Like what people get addicted to or the, what is the crux of the binge eating disorder is that um, they want to change their body. They want to be thinner most of the time. They want to not eat a certain way. And if you think about how long potentially someone has been told, right? Like not to eat this, not to eat that it like, I think of recovery as we have to do the opposite of what we were doing in, you know, our addiction or our disorder, whatever. So to me, right, obviously we know that with substances, it's doing the opposite of not drinking, but with binging, it's not about the food. It's about not trying to lose weight or not trying to restrict the restriction. I mean, I think it's hard when people don't understand the science of, and you can, you know, you know, this as a nutritionist, right? Like the science of how restriction causes binging. And if you don't know that, I think it can be really hard to navigate that.
0: Um, And I also, I kind of want to asterisk that as well of just The restriction, yes, but kind of what you were just saying, also just the intention to, the intent of restricting or the desire to restrict. I I mean, I've talked to so many people who they're like, you know, I haven't been binging for a while. And then someone said something about my body and I immediately thought, well, maybe I could lose some weight. Just that thought caused them to binge and they hadn't even acted on it. So just the thought alone can be strong enough to cause our body to want to keep us safe by making sure we're eating enough, causing a a binge from there. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, the difference obviously with alcohol and substances too is like we don't have a famine response to alcohol and substance use substances because that's not in there where your body is constantly trying to respond to keep you safe to keep you alive so if you even like you said if you have a thought or you have a desire you start thinking about trying to lose weight or you think about restricting that is going to trigger your body's famine response and want you you know it's going to make food more desirable and I think also recognizing a lot of people grow up with food scarcity in some capacity whether it's like Actually, they grew up in a way where they couldn't afford food and they didn't have access to enough food or their family, like, you know, and parents limited their food. I mean, I grew up in a household where, you know, candy and and, uh, dessert wasn't allowed or was hidden and restricted. And like that messaging, a lot of us, it starts really, really young. Like if you think about kids being obsessed with sugar, it's a lot of times because of just it's so desirable and it's so off limits. Um, I feel like I went off on a tangent of what we were saying, but
0: (laughs) no, I mean, I think it's so important to point that out because I see that so often and when I'm talking about okay, well, where did this start or where did this come from? Right. They're like, well, my diet started when I was 16. Well, I was like, well, let's go deeper than that. Why right. did the diet start? And it's like, oh, because you know, mm-hmm. I I was now allowed to go out on my own with my friends, with my car, and and get fast food, and and then I started binging on fast food because in their household growing up fast yeah. food or, or certain types of food were demonized. I'm like, that's, yeah. you know, where we have to start to work on the mindset around the fast food, not necessarily the fast food being the problem. So yes, that can get into a whole other topic about <laughs> the, the food insecurity or the yeah. scarcity mindset growing up for sure.
1: <laughs> um, but I think you would ask me, right. Like about just recovery and, and treatment and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that obviously, like we've been talking about how like getting into, you know, I'm a huge fan of intuitive eating, all foods fit a lot of times to get into recovery from binge eating disorder. It does look like letting yourself eat different types of foods, trying different foods, fear foods, things like that. Like, you know, the habituation of trying different foods so that they lose interest. Um, where when it comes to substances, obviously, it's not engaging in substances. I'm also a fan of harm reduction, um, depending on what a person is going through and things like that. Um, But I also find what's really important with both is a lot of times we use both to um, deal with our emotions. So I find a lot of people, whether it's substances, whether it's, you know, an eating disorder or both, we use something outside of ourselves to deal with our emotions because we never learn how to regulate our emotions. We never learn how to identify how we're feeling. If you think about how a lot of us were raised and I mean, it's, it's helpful to put into context that like therapy only really became a real thing in like the 1950s. So that isn't that long. So if you think about our parents' generation, their generation, they were just Mm -hmm. doing what they thought was best,
0: but- And how long it took for it to not be stigmatized to where anybody could go. Yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly, right? Like in the 1920s, in the early 1900s, asylums existed. And if you were crazy, you were just locked (laughs) up. So yeah, we've come a long way from there, but it makes sense that parents weren't really taught how to sit with your child when they're upset. So a lot of us, I find- you know, didn't know how to deal with our emotions, were scared of our emotions in some way, or didn't learn coping skills, how to regulate how we're feeling. Um, And instead we use, whether it was a substance, whether it was a diet, um, we use that to regulate. So a lot of it is kind of, I talk a lot about like reparenting and looking at what like was missed growing up and, learning how to meet your needs, self-care um, boundaries are a huge, huge thing that I talk about. Um, yeah.
0: So it's like yeah. all of that stuff. I, when you were explaining that, I saw like a Venn diagram where like yeah. the two opposite sides, the differences were the permission, you know, yeah. when it comes to substances versus food, you know, we have to, to work on differences in the allowance of those Items, but yeah. the overlap is the emotions, the um maybe mindset around those foods, the coping strategies, the boundaries, yeah. like those definitely overlap when it comes to managing binge eating or any other type of food control um yeah. issues you might have, and also the the substances. So I think that's kind of great. You should make a, a graphic on that for your Instagram. I, <laughs> I do
1: have one. It was like so oh, overlapped. Great. I did it a long time ago. I'll have to show you it. it's it's so overlapped it's not a Venn diagram because the overlap is almost more than the like yeah because they also come with like physical like issues right Mm -hmm. like all of these other things um yeah I don't have it in front of me but yeah there's so so much overlap and I think especially like you were kind of alluding to too So often, I mean, like I said, if you think about 45% is that, you know, 15 to 45%, people will develop one or the other at this, you know, at some point, I think so many people end up with both in some capacity and some of the, and then even like the risk factors of relapse are really important to think about both because, um, if you, like I was saying, if you start realizing that you were using substances because you had gained weight, that becomes a risk for relapse of substances. If you realize, well, I don't like that I'm gaining weight and I am not good at dieting or whatever, all I have to do is start using substances again and I will lose weight. And there's a really, really heartbreaking um, quote, like common, like quote that is often heard in rehabs. That's, I would rather be, um, I would rather be skinny and high than fat and sober. And it's like oh, the most heartbreaking gosh. common thing that people say. And I think it just shows how deep diet culture is.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is. And, you know, there's that quote just reminds me so much about how when I'm, I'm talking with clients about that desire to lose weight. I always talk about, okay, there are two options here. We can pursue that desire or we cannot. Let's talk about the cost and the benefit to both of those. And I think that some people are ready to say, okay, the cost of pursuing weight loss is not worth it. um, and, And the benefit of healing that desire and working on those belief systems is worth it some people aren't ready for that some people aren't yeah. ready to face how hard it is really to kind of go against the status quo and make peace yeah. with your body and reject dieting and so I think that quote just reminds me of that of sometimes when I talk about those two options in the cost benefit you can see people are like oh yeah no no doubt about it I would much rather be miserable but Um, lose weight. And that is something that takes, I think, a lot of time to work through where that comes from, um, what maybe the belief is around not pursuing that, like what fears are there. And that's why therapy is so important. (laughs) Because although I work, I I always tell people, I definitely teeter on the line of like, being your counselor and your dietitian because so much of it is emotional. But then when I see somebody is really not willing to give up that yeah. desire to lose weight because it causes them to distress to think yeah. about it. Then I'm like, okay, maybe we should talk about having a supplement of therapy with this as yeah. well. Um, so one thing I want to get into, outside of you know substance use disorders, is just general social casual. Drinking at or yeah. smoking marijuana, all of that, yeah. because it's come up in my coaching before, and it's always such an interesting conversation about when we're healing from binge eating. Sometimes the the drink or the or the the weed, whatever, allows them to binge, so they start to contribute the alcohol or the weed to being what's causing the binging. So do you ever kind of see this, but where it's not necessarily um, like a substance use disorder?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that that's a really common thing because a lot of times alcohol or marijuana or whatever, like it lowers, right, your inhibitions. So it kind of just puts you in a state of doing what, you know, there's there's a phrase in the addiction community of um whenever you drink or use something that isn't your your substance of choice you end up just wanting that like drug of choice so if you're someone who is struggling with binge eating or bulimia or something like that it's really really common when someone drinks or smokes that they end up engaging in that because When you drink, especially, you know, like the rational part of your brain shuts down, you can't make good decisions because you can't predict, can't think into the future very well. Um, So I think it is a big, a big challenge and something that someone might want to explore, not because they have a substance use disorder necessarily, but especially in early recovery from an eating disorder. I think it can be really helpful to not engage in drinking or smoking or something like that, just so that you can build up some more time. Yeah, absolutely. You're like, you know, when it's harder, it's harder, you know, the easier, the longer time you have in recovery, the stronger that muscle is going to be a little bit.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I always explain it as it's, it's less about the substance. It's more about the need to binge was already there, but the, the substance allowed you to kind of let your guard down a little bit to say, Oh, screw it. Like whatever. I'm just going to allow myself to engage in this. And so there, that correlation happens where, Oh, I, I think that the the smoking is causing me to binge but really it's just showing you what was already there but i find that once we heal what was underneath the need to binge yeah. for a while and like you said build up this that muscle that when they decide to to smoke again or drink again yeah. it doesn't automatically cause a binge
1: totally and i think it's how much also you're able to right like you might eat more or foods that aren't like that don't make you feel great. Right. Like Mm -hmm. after you, you know, when you get higher, you get drunk. So it's also, I think the skill of being able to not restrict the next day. I Mm -hmm. think that is such an important part of it too, because if you're able to, if you're still struggling with fear foods, you know, or something like that, and then you wake up the next morning and you're hungover, and you've eaten a bunch of food that you like, that was scary to you you're going to really want to restrict. You're going to be like, you're going to beat yourself up and you're going to go right back into that place of like the restriction and then the binging. So you really have to also, I think, develop the muscle of being able to eat different foods and being able to eat more than maybe you feel like you should or want to or is normal for you or whatever so that you don't the next day really, really want to restrict. And instead you can like go get French fries or whatever you're craving the next day because you probably will be. And just like know that, you know, it'll even out and eventually, you know, probably the next day you'll want something, you know, a little bit with more nutrients because you're more recovered. That's just kind of how it works.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think it's so important to remember that it's not even just about the moment. It's about the moment surrounding the moment where you allowed yourself to, to eat some late night pizza with your friends Yeah. because simply the guilt or shame associated with a moment can cause you to binge again, like we were kind of talking about earlier, it's not necessarily about the behaviors because I I hear so much from people. They're like, I'm not restricting though. So why am I binging? And then we start to talk and I was like, well, you, you have the should talking, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that much. Mm -hmm. Or there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with that food. And those are restrictive mindsets, even if you're allowing yourself to eat all food. So when you have a a night out with your friends and you get late night pizza, it's, Uh, allowing yourself to have that, enjoy it and move on without it being something that um, feels it has to be made up for or something that you feel guilty about in any way.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is something that, um, you know, it takes time to figure out. I think especially with bulimia, it's a little trickier with the night of being like drunk or high, because if you like drink too much or something like that, and then you feel sick, it's going to be very tempting to want to purge. So I think, um, I think when it comes to, you know, restriction and binging, it's more even about the next day where I think bulimia is sometimes more that night because it's Mm -hmm. so easy to just purge after you've eaten that pizza and you're not in the front, like the you know, a rational frame of mind to try to like not or something like that. Right.
0: Right. And so you, if you found that there was a strong correlation between, um, engaging in those behaviors and when you're, you're drinking or something, you would try to recommend maybe abstaining from alcohol or a
1: break for like 30 days or something like that. I mean, I think like questioning your relationship with alcohol is like a healthy thing to kind of do anyway. Mm Um, so yeah, not, you don't have to forever. You don't need to make a declaration. I'm really against the idea that people have to call themselves an alcoholic to look at their drinking. Um, but yeah, I think just like taking a break for 30 days um, and seeing how that goes as a way to help your recovery can be really, really helpful.
0: Yeah. Because I'm yeah. a really big believer
1: too in like doing one thing at a time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which I'm sure can get kind of, messy when we're like, we're trying to, to work on our relationship with food and our relationship with drugs or alcohol. So, um, it's so individualized and that, that reminded me of, did you watch the Demi Lovato documentary on YouTube? I haven't yet. I need to watch it. (laughs) It's, it's interesting because the way spoiler alert, I mean, it's not really spoiler alert, but spoiler alert for anyone listening who wants (laughs) to watch it. Um, and the end she talks about how everyone telling her, oh, you have to be abstinent. You have to be abstinent. You're an alcoholic. You're, you know, a a drug abuser. Like you're all these things actually caused her to want to do those things more because she felt Mm -hmm. she had to I don't know, live up to, to what everyone else was saying. And so when you were like, you don't necessarily have to call yourself an alcoholic. Cause like sometimes doing that can cause people to maybe get in their head about it or, yeah. or feel certain ways, just the way she was describing it. I was like, Oh, she had to find a way for this to work for her yeah. rather than her team all trying to throw all these, these words, this language, this yeah. treatment onto her. And now she's trying to find her own balance. So, yeah. and, and I think that the way she described it really resonated with myself. And many of my clients have told yeah. me just realizing, oh, it's about me and what I find works for me, not necessarily what someone is telling me I have to do. A lot of it's just that experimentation and it has to land with with you yeah. as the, the client.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it is unfortunate that up until recently, there haven't been different pathways and different ways for different, for people to explore it. Cause I do believe everyone's different. People have different ways of things that work. We all have different priorities and different lives. And for some of us, like, like you were saying, like the cost isn't worth it. For some of us, it, it is. So, and it might change in your life too. So I think giving people the freedom to experiment, to try different things, to see what works for them um, is really, is really powerful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was such a great conversation. I think it was just nice to hear the different angles, the different ways eating disorders and substance use overlap, um, and just kind of getting your expertise on this all. And it sounds like you're writing a book, which is super exciting. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So when is your book coming out?
1: <laughs> it will be out on January
0: 4th. Ooh, so exciting. Yeah. Well, I are, is it going to be, can you give us, what is it about? <laughs>
1: I can. It's called, it's called not drinking tonight. Um, and it's a book that's going to help you, um, kind of, examine and look at your relationship with alcohol. And it's really, I also talk about eating disorders and the overlap of them in it a lot. Um, and it's kind of just like giving people, I kind of say that in the introduction that it's kind of like an informed consent of alcohol of like all the things that you kind of wish you knew about it, um, that not everyone gets to know. And then once you read the book, it's filled with kind of exercises and different things to help you Examine if you want to take a break from drinking. Um, and it's non judgmental and very, I'm very like, you don't have to call yourself an alcoholic. Um, but let's look at, you know, some of the things that alcohol makes life harder with.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm excited to see that. And yeah. I'm sure it's still wor- a work in progress if it's not coming yeah. out until January. Yeah, <laughs> <So> good, luck. <laughs> good luck with finishing that. That's Thank awesome. You. Thank yeah. you. So just to kind of close this out, some words of of wisdom to those that are listening who are likely struggling with binge eating or their relationship yeah. with food and, and how alcohol or, or substances may tie into this. What would you say to them? Um,
1: I would say, especially if they're struggling with both, do one thing at a time. Um, often in the recovery community, we talk about you have to do the thing that's like gonna kill you first or what's the most serious first so if your eating disorder is more unmanageable or creating more pain for you start with that and don't worry yet about substances and things like that I think a big thing is everyone tries to do everything at once so small 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 goals is my recommendation, regardless of where you are on it. It's so easy to get overwhelmed when we think about letting yourself eat pizza forever, right? Or letting yourself eat sugar forever. And if you can focus on just
0: today or one meal, um, it's a lot easier to work through. Yes. I love that. Like give yourself time, give yourself grace to explore and and you'll probably mess up
1: on this. <laughs> yes. Like, It's not going to be perfect. It's like a journey. It's going to be some steps forward and some steps back and know that going in. Cause I think that we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves to just, you know, get from point A to point B or people, loved ones can put pressure on us to why aren't you making progress fast enough? And, um, you know, the best, I think the deepest recoveries are those where we can explore different things and try and fail and figure out what works for us. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Resisting quote unquote, making mistakes doesn't actually make us not make mistakes. It, it honestly yeah. just keeps us from, you know, moving through that to learn something from it. So, so totally. allowing yourself to ebb and flow through the recovery. Totally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. I loved this conversation. So where can everyone listening find you? Yes, you can find me on Instagram or TikTok at Therapy
1: for Women, And you can also um, check out my practice at therapyforwomencenter.com. So we have, we're based in Philly, but we serve a lot of states across the country too.
0: Awesome. Yay. Well, everyone go, go check her out and- well, chat later. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening through this podcast episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. I know that I did. Amanda was amazing to have on the podcast. And I really hope you enjoyed listening to her insights and our conversation around this really nuanced but important topic and the way that substance use plays into your eating disorder recovery or relationship with food. So if you enjoyed it, make sure you let me know either by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or letting me know over on my Instagram at behind.the.binge. So it's behind the binge on Instagram with periods in between the words. And I would love to hear your thoughts over there. So again, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.